You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. This is a case of the right person in the right place at, well, it's hard to call this the right time, but it doesn't hurt that Christia Freeland is Canada's Deputy Prime Minister and Minister of Finance right now. And to our Russian counterparts, who are today struggling vainly to prop up a ruble in freefall, let me say, we warned you. 39 countries, including the UK, Canada and the Netherlands, uh, voted uh, to refer Putin's actions to the International Criminal Court. In light of Russia's reckless and dangerous military strike, we're imposing further severe sanctions. Freeland has deep ties to Ukraine. She is respected around the world for her tough stance on Russia. And as we have seen over the past couple of weeks, she has been one of the politicians on the world stage pushing hardest for sanctions that will make Russian President Vladimir Putin feel real economic pain over his invasion. So what is Minister Freeland's long history with Ukraine? Is it an asset in this case or an anchor? Does that depend on who you ask? How did she lead the way to get countries around the world on board with these sanctions? And is this actually a real Canadian foreign policy? Because we haven't had one of those in quite a while. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Justin Ling is a freelance investigative journalist who covers just about everything from misinformation and conspiracy theories to extremism, policing, and national security. Hi, Justin. Hey, Jordan. How's it going? It's going all right. It's been an interesting couple of weeks here. Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Why don't we start today? Um, Because I think a lot of Canadians have been hearing a ton about our role in sanctions against Russia. Who has been leading that push in the government? You know, I think when it comes to Russia and Ukraine, there's been a general consensus inside the Trudeau government. I don't think you've seen a ton of people who are offside who think that we ought to form uh, forge a sort of alternate path when it comes to to Russia. The only figure uh, in this government that I can point to that was sort of of the belief that we should be a little softer on these issues was Stefan Dion, our former foreign affairs minister, Hmm. who was sort of unceremoniously kicked to the curb a few years back and replaced with Christia Freeland. and since then, I think the the focus has been very much uh, in line with uh, what Minister Freeland believes, which is um, that that Russia is is ultimately an illiberal uh, force in in world affairs. That it is um, you know a, a real threat to the international order we've built, uh, and that fundamentally it's a threat to European and, and North American security. And you've seen that ethos sort of carry over and sort of inform how the true government operates. And I think it's fair to say that Christia Freeland is herself uh, one of the most influential figures when it comes to Canada's position, uh, both on world affairs, but specifically when it comes to, to Ukraine and Russia. Well, and this is where I'm fascinated by, I guess, the coincidence of the timing. Uh, can you tell me more about Christia Freeland specifically and her background as it relates to Ukraine? Because this is deep. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so Freeland herself is is Ukrainian. I mean, she's I think second generation uh, Ukrainian. Has been a kind of a vocal proponent um, for the Ukrainian cause for the you know for a a sort of liberal Ukrainian democracy for for quite some time. Um, her mother actually had a hand in helping draft the Ukrainian constitution. Uh, Freeland herself speaks Russian, Ukrainian, and English and French. Of course, uh, she has uh, during her career as a journalist worked as the uh, bureau chief in Moscow. Uh, she has been uh, incredibly uh, influential over the years in in terms of um, you know the, the state of affairs in Russia and Ukraine. As as bureau chief, she worked closely with uh, Bill Browder, a noted uh, critic of the Putin regime, and a sort of a scourge to uh, to oligarchs everywhere. Christina Freeland helped publish some of his research into some shady dealings in the Russian oil and gas sector. Um, and and beyond that, you know, Freeland has um, been a pretty avid champion for uh, the more democratic, Western-leaning um, element inside Ukraine. So you know, her influence here looms pretty large. You know, she herself is actually banned from going to Russia. She was uh, you know, on the list of members of parliament who were sanctioned by Moscow after the tit-for-tat uh, retaliation uh, following the 2014 invasion of Donetsk and Crimea. So, you know, Freeland is a pretty prominent voice when it comes to everything Ukraine, Russia. Uh, and she's also been a major target of, of you know, Russian um, partly disinformation, propaganda, whatever you want to call it. Um, the Russians have have honed in aggressively on her her own family, her own family history. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the fact that Russia has, has spent so much time and energy trying to spear her is an indication of just, you know, how much they view her as a major figure uh, in, in, you know, in the Western response to, to Russian aggression. And we'll come back and talk more about Freeland and some of the conspiracy theories floating around about her. But but first, I wanted to get a picture of, you know, what Canada is doing and what's happening against Russia in general. So first, maybe just how close are Canada and Ukraine in general? How tight is this relationship beyond uh, Christian Freeland? Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it's clear that there is a longstanding um, deep relationship between the two countries. Canada has the largest Ukrainian diaspora in the world after Russia. Uh, it has a, you know, a significant number who of folks who speak, you know, understand uh, Ukrainian. We have academic departments that focus on Ukrainian affairs, Ukrainian studies, Ukrainian literature. Um, you know, there is really significant uh, travel between the two countries. Canada has a sort of a unique. A spot in that it's it's you know not European but has these you know, really really deep roots in the country, uh, and I I think it it has informed how Ottawa has approached things happening in Ukraine in recent years. You know, prior to the Euromaidan revolution in 2014, uh, Ukraine was was sort of a difficult case. You had a, a quite corrupt government that wasn't terribly interested in in you know managing its its relations with the rest of Europe or North America at least not to the same degree that it does now mm-hmm. and i think fundamentally uh there wasn't much for Canada to do there. I mean, Ukraine was trying to figure out how to leverage its relationship with Moscow to become a major oil and gas uh, supplier for Europe. And, and Canada didn't really fit into that equation. After the revolution, after you saw um, your former President Yanukovych 
thrown out of office and replaced with you know, a, a democratically elected um, government led by Petro Poroshenko, uh, you saw more of a willingness to work with Western powers to to um, you know, manage their economy, to root out some of that corruption, to figure out how to liberalize and democratize. And Canada stepped up in a, in a relatively major way. I mean, I think I am I'm somebody who counts myself as incredibly uh, critical and skeptical of how um, the Canadian government has has managed international affairs in recent years. But Ukraine is a bright spot. Ukraine is a spot where Canada both put up money, um, support military assets, uh, personnel, uh, expertise in order to try and modernize their military, modernize their economy, um, you know, sort of decouple themselves from uh, the Russian regime and figure out how to kind of get itself on a path to potentially even EU membership. And all things told, this is this is pretty significant. Canada has become one of the most kind of integral partners to Ukraine, um, which is which is no small feat. So can you describe then uh, what happened once Russia invaded from Canada's perspective, I guess, in terms of the sanctions that have been put in place and, and probably not all of those in detail because there are a million of them by now. But um, but how Canada kind of pushed to ramp those up and, and where they got to. Yeah, so it's worth going back just for a second to to 2014 when the West tried to you know place consequences on Russia for seizing Crimea and Donetsk. It did so in a very kind of hesitant way. Uh, I don't think the West had entirely grappled with what it meant to discourage this sort of aggressive behavior, right? You know, there um, was an effort to start sanctioning uh, corrupt officials. There was an effort to sanction folks um, who supported Putin directly, including uh, you know, members of his cabinet, members of, of the Duma, the legislature in Russia. Um, but I don't think. The EU, the US, and Canada were quite on the same page in terms of how to coordinate that response in such a way that would actually discourage what Russia was doing. So, you know, these sanctions definitely hurt the the, the Putin government. It it cost them billions of dollars and 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 absolutely shaved off any GDP growth that Russia should have been experiencing otherwise. But it didn't manage to sort of discourage Putin from from leveraging the ill-gotten gains he sees, right? So mm-hmm. Putin managed to win a significant oil and gas reserve um, in the Black Sea around Crimea, in Donetsk. And, and fundamentally, it meant that Putin made money off of this in, in many ways. He actually probably helped the long-term economic viability of the Russian state by this invasion despite those sanctions. When he started readying for the most recent invasion uh, late last year, I think he firmly believed that the same thing would happen, that the EU, the US and Canada would not be able to get on the same page to slap sanctions on him to actually form and and you know, express consequences for what he had done, uh, or at the very least that he'd be able to take Kiev before any sort of major uh, economic sanctions package would be put together. And fundamentally, in an almost in a shocking way, he was wrong on every single front. Mm-hmm. Um, Canada, in particular, started the the campaign to sanction the Russian central bank. Now, this was considered almost impossible to get done. You know, this was touted a few times in the days leading up to the invasion. Uh, but frankly, there was a, a general uh, incredulity over the idea that. Western states would manage to sanction uh, the central bank and cut off Russia from its foreign currency reserves. 
Why is that? Because fundamentally, it would cost the world a significant amount of money. I you know, see. Cutting off Russia from its foreign currency reserves, which would probably uh, lead to a tit-for-tat measure from Moscow, and indeed it did, would, would mean that rubles the states are holding could become essentially worthless or at least unusable. Uh, it also meant that uh, you know, the significant amounts of assets that Russia had abroad would be uh, essentially frozen. And, and that, that would have a significant chilling effect on, um, on all sorts of, of, of trading uh, for you know the G- G7 essentially, and it came with a broader package as well. Um, you know, sanctions, of course, on on many banks that do business in the West, uh, as well as cutting off many Russian institutions from the SWIFT payment system. Just quickly, for those who don't know, what is SWIFT? So SWIFT is actually a messaging platform that that manages a lot of exchanges between banks worldwide. It's basically a common language uh, that that banks can use to facilitate money transfers, for example, and many other sort of day-to-day financial uh, transactions. And it is far and away probably the most important piece of infrastructure to enable uh, international trading and and finance. And tens of thousands of banks are on this. Uh, To not be part of the SWIFT club is to not be speaking the language of of most major financial institutions. Now, Canada helped either uh, spearhead those initiatives or champion them when the UK put them forward. And all told, this has a huge effect on on many major economies, particularly in Europe, less so Canada. But nevertheless, you know, this is why Putin really did not expect to see this level of of kind of coordination from the West, because it meant countries like Italy, Germany, France were going to forego billions of dollars in trade uh, and and freeze billions of dollars in assets uh, that would have blowback on their own economies. And frankly, I've been gobsmacked that there was an ability to get all of these governments on side to herd cats, essentially, and to get them on the same page to, to launch these sanctions. And not only that, they did it in the course of a week. Now, there's lots to be said about whether or not these sanctions should have been put in place before the invasion happened in order to dissuade this this unprecedented uh, invasion. But nevertheless, the fact that it was done is is frankly incredible. Well, that was my next question about the timing of them is, do we know yet or when will we know if they're having an impact in Russia that would push Putin towards de-escalation? So there's going to be short-term consequences, medium-term consequences, and long-term consequences. The short-term, you're already seeing it. Uh, oligarchs close to the Putin regime, oligarchs that have supported Putin and benefited from his, his state-level corruption, have seen their yachts seized throughout Europe. They've seen assets they own abroad um, taken by, you know, by Western governments. Um, and you may even see some of those assets liquidated. You're seeing um, the West seize these ill-gotten gains. And and actually, kind of hit these oligarchs on the bottom line, which is massive. You know, I can't stress enough that the Putin regime it has a symbiotic relationship with the corrupt upper classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, these oligarchs support the Putin regime financially, politically. They they manage the media, they manage his propaganda, they manage um, his the financing of his state. But on the flip side, you know, he needs them right. you know, without this. 
um, this elite class to to manage his popularity, to um, you know, to keep his state running, uh, he would not be in power today. So, you know, weakening support for him and for these for this you know, nationalist invasion uh, by the oligarch class is really really significant. Now. Mm-hmm. That is the short-term consequence. That is probably manageable. But as you go into the future, in, in you know the medium long term, you're cutting uh, the, the the Russian government off swift, making it nearly impossible to have foreign currency reserves to sort of um, you know, scaffold up the ruble. You know that is going to have incredibly damaging consequences on uh, the Russian economy. It's going to essentially decouple the Russian re- the Russian regime from the rest of the world, with some exceptions. And in so doing, that makes it much harder to get foreign direct investment. That makes it much harder for him to do international uh, col- you know, collaborations or to, to launch oil and gas pro- uh, projects in other countries. It's going to make it harder and harder for him to sell his energy as countries try to unplug from uh, the Russian uh, gas uh, supply. And in the long term, it's going to mean, and this is really the only bright spot for him, it's going to mean he needs to plug in more um, you know, intently to the Chinese economy. Huh. There's a huge benefit potentially for Russia there, uh, you know, the, especially as China sees itself more isolated from the rest of the world. You you could sort of see an illiberal bloc that is sort of has two poles in Russia and China and is supported by other rogue regimes um, and you know countries that need more direct investment. So everything from North Korea to uh, many states in Central Africa to many countries in the Caucasus that are already in the Russian sphere of influence, uh, and you could see sort of a, a two economy world. One of you know, Western liberal democracies and one of more uh, repressive nationalist authoritarian regimes led by Russia and China. Now, that's a huge opportunity for Russia, but it also comes with huge pitfalls. It would essentially mean that Russia is you know, second banana uh, to China in this new world order. And it would potentially become just sort of a, a, a energy supplier to a high tech Chinese regime. So it, it, there's you know there's upsides and downsides to this, but it's all to say that that the decisions made over the last week have fundamentally set a course for a very different world economic order over the next ten years. So that push for sanctions led by Canada does it also give? tacit permission, I guess, is the word I'm looking for, for the rest of the West to weigh in. And I'm thinking here uh, about companies, you know, we've seen Visa and MasterCard now pull out of Russia. I know Netflix and many, many other digital companies have stopped doing business in Russia. Is that is that sort of encouraged by the level of sanctions that, as you say, people just didn't expect? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of this was provoked uh, by two things, you know, one, how brutal and aggressive the invasion was. You know, I think there was real speculation that whatever Putin did, it would be on a much smaller scale than what we've seen. Um, There was talk of him trying to seize large portions of the East, um, of maybe trying to kind of form a land border, a land bridge between um, Donetsk and Crimea and sort of stop there. I think if he had done that, you would not see the sort of um, universal response that you've seen here. The fact that he made a go for Kiev, the fact that you see him shelling civilian positions throughout the country, the fact that you're seeing airstrikes on civilian targets, I think it has galvanized the world in a really significant way that I, I don't think anyone saw coming. So you know that's part one. Part two, the resistance of the Ukrainian people is hard not to be inspired by, right? You know, the fact yeah. that everyday people 
have have stood up, um, some nonviolently, some arming themselves um, to to oppose this invasion. The fact that you've seen these incredible successes, you know, everything from Ukrainian farmers, um, you know, seizing tanks that were stuck in the mud, uh, to amateur drone operators volunteering to try and thwart Russian airstrikes to everyday folks and politicians picking up Kalashnikovs to go patrol the streets and defend against this unbelievable uh, war of aggression. I think it is really hard not to feel inspired and supportive of the Ukrainian people. And I think that the governments have, have almost extraordinarily gotten on the same page to decry you know, this, this, this incredible act of aggression, I think it absolutely has spurred private companies. And some, I think altruistically, some because they realize there's a great marketing opportunity either mm-hmm. way. I think it's absolutely uh, getting a lot of those private enterprises on board and pushing them to do something. And I, again, I do not believe Russia imagined this. I don't think he imagined uh, the West uh, speaking with one voice, I don't think he imagined everyday people around the world, uh, you know, seeing uh, what's going on and, and and being so attuned to the violence that ha- that's happening. And I don't think he anticipated just how resilient the Ukrainian people would be and just how aggressively they reject the idea that, that Russia gets to decide their future instead of them themselves. As we end here, I want to bring it back to Canada and to Christia Freeland, just because, as you say, she's one of the catalysts for uh, United West in terms of sanctions. Given her history with Ukraine and, you know, the misinformation tactics that you mentioned from Russia, how are they attempting to use that against her and what kind of stuff, because I know you cover this, are we seeing filter out there on the internet um, about her past ties to Ukraine? It's quite funny because I think we give Russia an awful lot of credit for its propaganda and disinformation efforts. And there's no doubt that they do it a lot. And there's no doubt that they try really hard. But the simple reality is they're not as good as they think they are. <laughs> I used to go get beers with a uh, an official in the Russian embassy. He was later booted out of the country for being an intelligence asset. But we used to go get beers and he tried really hard to convince me. That uh, the fact that her great grandfather uh, was the editor of a of a paper that op- operated during uh, the Nazi occupation uh, of of Ukraine, the fact that he worked there was evidence that Christia Freeland herself is some sort of Nazi sympathizer. You know, he he tried repeatedly to sort of hand me documents that would that would prove that Canada was supporting some fascist uh, tendencies in Ukraine, and I I had to laugh at him and I said, you know. This this is not going to convince anybody. Nobody buys this. And nevertheless, he kept pushing it. And it, it is still a, a, a thread out there, although it, I, I think it has ultimately failed to convince many people of, of Christia Freeland's supposed sympathies for, uh, for Nazism. But they do this a lot. More recently, you've seen an effort by the, by the Russian regime to, to push the idea that maybe this invasion is all about destroying bio labs, biological laboratories right. that are hidden throughout Ukraine that America is using to, to create bioweapons, which of course is absolutely ludicrous. Um, and you have to imagine uh, probably uh, taking a page out of uh, George W. Bush's excuse for invading Iraq in 2003. Right. Um, but nevertheless, you, you see these repeated efforts to, I, I think, uh, try and undermine Western support for Ukraine that it fundamentally comes from a place of thinking we're idiots. I think Russia thinks we're quite stupid. And I think a lot of their their propaganda belies that kind of low estimation of our intelligence. And I think they're 
continuing to double down on it. And I think, again, it, it, it shows just how little uh, Russia expected the response. Right. I think it shows just how optimistic they were that this invasion would go, would go somewhat differently. And I think as time goes on, it's only going to become more and more apparent uh, just how much Russia uh, you know, did not have a good reason for this, just how much they're trying to pull the wool over our eyes and, and convince us that this is not a war of aggression, that this is not a full-scale invasion, that this is something quite different. Uh, and it's not working. And I, I think in, as this sort of glean comes off um, Putin's mystique, I think you'll see uh, his position become more and more untenable. Will that be enough to unseat him? I don't know. But I think it'll be interesting to watch. Justin, thank you for this. I want to ask you one quick question before you go, because it's kind of a cynical and political one, but just because the timing is so apt. What do you think this could mean for Freeland's political future? You know, if I go back six months to after the last election, she was already kind of seen as a liberal leader in waiting and a successor to Trudeau. Does this help or hurt her? Does this give her momentum? What do you think? I I don't know. I, I frankly don't know. And I, I, I always, you know, I, I kind of bristle at the idea that we have to ascribe uh, domestic uh, political consequences to uh, a truly horrifying international disaster. But That's let me fair. say this, you know, her political future, I think is a big question mark. Um, I've certainly talked to people who do not think she intends on running, that she is actually happy where she is. And and I think there's probably some truth to that. I mean, you know, being prime minister means being a retail politician to a large degree. It means a lot of politicking. It means a lot of nonsense. Right. And looking at Freeland now, I think this is where she thrives, you know, being not quite out front somewhere in, in the back of the pack a little bit, but really, um, you know, doing the hard work, managing crises and really being kind of the backbone of the government, I, th- I think that's something she prefers a little more. And I will say, you know, this government in particular has not had a coherent foreign policy in the seven years it's been in power. Mm-hmm. It has really wrung its hands until they bled in many respects on, on major issues abroad. It has been, uh, I think, too quiet on other uh, humanitarian disasters from, from Yemen um, to, you know, to, to Venezuela to many other places. Uh, I don't think Canada has has led any initiatives. I don't think it has been a critical player in international affairs, with the exception of what's happening right now. And I think um, perhaps that is that is Freeland's influence. Um, perhaps it's just a sign that this government does better in a crisis than it does in regular times. Uh, but nevertheless, I, I have to imagine that that Freeland you know doesn't necessarily want to give up a good thing. I think Trudeau you know intends on running again. I think she enjoys being um you know the deputy prime minister and I I don't anticipate um anyone's going to use the current crisis to to change that. Thanks Justin, I had to ask. Yeah, of course. That was Justin Ling and that was the big story. For more from us, you can head to the bigstorypodcast.ca you can find us anytime on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. And of course, you can write to us and leave us an email. And let us know what you think. The address is TheBigStoryPodcast. That's all one word at rci.rogers.com. The Big Story can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, doesn't matter. Wherever. Leave a rating. Leave a review. Tell your friends. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.